Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So I thought that I would, so I'm going to start, so I'm, I'm going to sort of give you this, a little tour um, using images um, through sort of all this research that I did that culminated in my dissertation, it became a book about um, Jewish immigrant encounters with indigenous Americans. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit how the project started and how it evolved and also what I'm working on now. But I sort of feel like I need to give a few, like, um, what's the word? Um, uh, cautionary or, you know, um, apologia. I don't even, I've lost my vocabulary. I'm sorry. It's been like, I'm like, it's, I'm a little jet lagged. So I just want to say, I'm not, uh, first of all, I'm not a historian, right? So I work a lot with history and with literary history in particular, but, um, but I, I'm interested, I, I work with literary text, that is to say the imagination. So I actually have a colleague who is a historian who actually wrote a history of actual historical encounters between Jewish immigrants and indigenous Americans. Um, and he and I have slightly different takes on, on sort of the psychology or the kind of like what, what sort of symbology informs these encounters. But I'm not, a, I'm not a historian who does like the actual history of Jews out west, right? Um, however, I'm really interested in that history and then I'm really interested in how it gets kind of used in sort of building this imaginary relationship between Jews and Native Americans. So I'm really interested in kind of the imagination, imagined encounters, fantasies of encounter, um, but I'm not a historian. The other kind of caveat, that's the word, caveat. Okay, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about like my friend, the historian, who actually just came out with a book, if you're interested in this, because there's a lot of local history, um, certainly in the Southwest and Arizona, um, but he wrote a book, his name is David Kaufman, and he wrote a book just now, it just came out called The Jews Indian. Um, and I can't remember what comes after the colon, but it really is like a, a history of Jews engaging with Native Americans. And there's one whole chapter about sort of Jews who go out west. There's a lot of stuff in there that he got from the Arizona archives, a ton of stuff. So I really, um, if you're interested in local history, I recommend that book. The other caveat that I have is that I'm not a Native Studies scholar. That is to say, I am not an expert on Native history, on indigenous cultures. Like, I, I am not here to explain or, you know, be the expert on Native cultures. And in fact, I have a lot of really strong feelings about why I shouldn't be that person, right? Um, I think that Native studies, that Native scholars are crucial, crucial voices in Native studies, and that their Native scholars should be the ones representing and explaining, and, you know. So I'm not a scholar of Native people, of Native cultures. Um, what, I'm, what I'm thinking about are Jews, and I'm thinking about what sort of fuels this is sort of my interest in how Jews imagine themselves at home in America. This is really a story about how do you develop a sense of belonging um, in a new place. 
Um, so those are my caveats. And I'll tell you, I'm going to start with this image and explain what this is um, and use this as a kind of symbol to get us started. And then I'll, talk, I'll tell you about sort of like how the project started and what's interesting. And then we have a lot of things to look at, which is always really fun, especially in the evening when people are getting sleepy. So <laughs> we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to turn the lights off. We are going to look at stuff. So OK, so this photograph, it's actually the cover image of my book. And this was taken in Arizona. I'm sure the landscape looks familiar. Um, and this was taken in the 1990s. It was a Jewish and Navajo spiritual gathering. So this was the idea of a rabbi from Oregon, of course. And, uh, um, and actually, Derrida, who's like one of the scholars who kind of talks about this image, says, would this idea have occurred to a rabbi from any other country? Right? It had to be an American rabbi who comes with this idea to bring together Navajo and Jews in a spiritual gathering. Um, so it's the mid-1990s. A delegation of rabbis visited Arizona for a spiritual gathering with Navajos. And Frederick Brenner, I think it's French, took this image of the meeting. And, um, and it, it actually appears in a photography collection of his called Diaspora, Homelands in Exile. And on the and on the, do you have it? Okay, so you should look. So there's the image, but then he has like interviews of people who were involved and then scholars who are looking at the image and commenting on it, right? So there's like a lot of kind of text around this image. So on the left, you see, um, so the, the photograph is taken from a car window, right? So that's the rear view, side rear view mirror. It's taken from a car window. On the left, you see the group of Jews. It's obviously a very progressive gathering because it's men and women wrapped in, you know, talitot carrying Torahs. So on the left, you see the Jews. On the right, in the mirror, you see the group of Navajo. And one writer says of the photograph, the Jews are looking at the Navajos who are looking at the Jews, while we, the viewers, are looking at a photo of the Jews and a mirror image of the Navajos. So this, to me, is speaks volumes about this idea of Jews seeing reflections of themselves in Native people, not really about Native people, right, but about sort of Jews seeing reflections, right, and, and kind of imagining things in their relationship with Native people. So that's, that's kind of my, how I read the image, this idea of like, you know, imagining relationships and seeing reflections of yourself. Um, a rabbi who was involved uh, has a memory of this. So this rabbi, um, uh, Yitzchak Husbands Hankin, um, sort of remembers was part of that gathering. And this is his recollection of the event. And again, the quote, the photo is really important in terms of what it, what it, the, the symbols that it introduces to us in terms of what's going to kind of um, uh, organize this talk. But what he says is also really important and the language that he uses. So he says, I have long sensed a profound weave of connection between Native Americans and the Jewish people. Ancient Hebrew tribes deemed their land sacred. Driven into exile, we, their descendants, never abandoned the idea of returning home. Unlike the exile that carried us far from home, the suffering that Native Americans bear was brought upon them by travelers from other nations who came into their ancestral home with genocidal force. We saw each other in the mirror of time and recognized our bond with one another, with creation, and with the creator of all humanity. Um, so this is why I think the language is important. Because for me, the encounter between, or the, the imagined encounter, the imagined relationship that Jewish immigrants and their children, right, their descendants, kind of developed with indigenous Americans, to me was really an expression of this kind of negotiation that Jews and modernity are always having between the desire to be what I call tribal, 
um, particularistic, affiliated with something smaller than nation, larger than family, tribal, um, and the desire to be sort of um, citizens of the Enlightenment, that is to say universal, right? And so this language of universalism versus tribalism, these are kind of the, the, kind of the forces pulling at Jews in modernity and Jews in America. And here, he's kind of using this language in this really complicated way where he's saying, Indigenous people and Jews are both tribal. That's our connection with each other. And he's also invoking exile and genocide and dispossession. Like this becomes like a really common theme. But then he says, then he invokes all of humanity, right? Then this becomes like a universal sort of, this, this relationship has universal implications. So that was really interesting to me. Um, and, then, um, and, and then the other thing that's really interesting to me, and which also is something that I grappled with in, in how, when my writing about this, is that all of the voices, so in the book Diaspora um, and in the photograph, the text that accompanies the photograph, all of the voices commenting on the photograph, commenting on the gathering, recollecting, they're all Jews. So it's Jews talking about this Jewish Navajo gathering. They debate how Jews and Native people are like or not like each other. They debate whether or not the gathering was useful or not useful. But there is not a single Navajo voice, right, in this debating this photograph. So it's, you know, it's sort of what my, my friend, a colleague of mine, says about black Jewish relations. He says black Jewish relations is actually a conversation that Jews are having with other Jews, right? It's like not a conversation. Uh, it's not really a mutual conversation. It's a, Jews, it's a conversation that Jews are interested in. Um, so that's sort of what I really grappled with, is this fascination that Jews have with indigenous Americans. Does it go the other way? Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. OK, so how this project started was um, I was in graduate school. And, um, and this was a moment, it was the 90s. It was a moment where there was a lot of scholarship happening about black Jewish relations. right? And there was a book that came out when I was a graduate student, um, very, very, very well-known, important book called Black Face, White Noise. And it's, um, the argument of the scholar, of the author of the book, um, is all of, it's all about sort of Jews. Uh, it, it's a very extended close reading of the film The Jazz Singer, which I'm sure we've all seen, the 1920s version, um, and especially the scene of blackface in the film. And the author, Michael Rogan, has this really famous analysis of that film where he says what the film, uh, what the film argues or what the film tells us is that Jews became white in America. Their racial status was kind of unfixed. They were not really quite white you know, in the 1920s but they could become white by putting on blackface, but then taking it off, right? Because you sort of demonstrate, you lay claim to black identity, but then you show that you can take it off and that you're, and that you're white. Um, and so that became his really famous argument that then all these kind of scholars who were dealing with issues of race and racial formation and Jews and other others, you know, we all have to kind of grapple with this argument. You know, Jews became white. How did they become white? By putting on and taking off blackface. So, so I'm kind of grappling with this idea and I was also working with Yiddish literature. And, um, and I discovered a, um, a modernist. I was working on Yiddish modernists. And they published a journal in the 19-teens and 20s. And um, there were a couple of issues where they did translations of Indian chants into Yiddish. No one had ever written about this. And I discovered these chants. And I'm like, what are they doing you know, in Yiddish? And where did they get it from? And this is fascinating. What's happening? And so um, that became the central chapter of the, of the project. And then I started kind of working forwards and backwards. Like, what other Jewish mediations and representations and translations and performances and appropriations, what else is there, right? Like, is this just this anomalous moment where Jews become interested in Indian chant and translate it into Yiddish? Or is this part of a kind of longer history of 
you know, fascination and, um, and mediation. And so what I discovered is there actually is a very long history of Jewish-Indian engagement, which for me became much, about much more than just race, about much more than just becoming white. Right? And, it, and the whole narrative of sort of Jews developing a sense of Americanness and being at home in America became about much more than race, and that's what drove the whole project. So why, right? Like why is there this history of Jewish, of Jewish fascination with Native Americans? What is happening? And there are two central questions that animated, animate this investigation. One question, one central question is, is Jewish engagement with Native Americans distinct from or within a history of Euro-American encounter, right? So when Jews imagine Indians, is that different than white America imagining Indians? Okay, so that's a question. Obviously, I think the answer is yes, right? <laughs> it's different. Um, it is distinct, informed, but distinct. I'll talk about why. Um, the second question, of course, is, is Jewish engagement with Native Americans different from the way in which Jews interacted with, whether real or imagined, with other ethno-racial groups in the United States. So that is to say, is what we say about sort of the black Jewish encounter or engagement or interaction, can you just translate that to kind of a Jewish native encounter, Jewish Asian encounter, Jewish Latino encounter? You know, so how, how, to what extent is this kind of translatable across different kinds of ethnic encounter? Um, and my answer to that one is yes as well, right? So, okay, so, um, so the way in which Jews imagine Indians is informed by and yet distinct within a long history of Euro-American Euro encounter. And the ways in which Jews imagine their relationship with Native Americans is also related to and yet distinct within a history of a kind of a, an array of ethnic and racial kind of interaction in the United States. So OK, so here I, there are two kind of key terms. Um, uh, and that is uh, tribal and enlightened, right? What does it mean to be tribal? And what does it mean to be enlightened, right? Because that was the kind of the central problem that I then kind of struggled, wrestled with, grappled with. So um, what do you think it means to be tribal? This is like the participatory part, so tribal. What is it to be tribal when we say tribal? Internally focused within the group. Okay, great. Internally focused within the group. What else do you think tribal? Heredity is a key part of it. Okay, possibly. Yeah, heredity, membership. What else? Loyalty. Loyalty. What do you think? Yeah, there's Anne. Go on. Communal. Communal. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. What else do you in think? Other words, in, in other words, well, no, Okay. <laughs> what else, though? More. Insulated. Insulated. Insulated and isolated. Okay. Exclusive. Exclusive. Yeah. Rachel, there's a seat for you right here. <laughs> Next to me. Okay. Excellent. Tradition. What else? Sorry? Customs. I'm going to throw out another word. Primitive. Okay. Ancient. Right? Okay. Communal. I like this idea of the collectivity communal, okay, excellent. So those are some kind of associations that we have with the word tribal. Um, what about the word enlightenment? What do you think it means to be a follower of the enlightenment? What do I mean by enlightenment? Like when I say, some of you were at my afternoon talk and I talked a lot about the enlightenment was a really important period, you know, for kind of Jews encounter with modernity. But what does it mean, like the enlightenment? What do we associate it with? Open to new ideas. Okay, great. 
science, openness to new ideas. What Maybe else? Leaving traditions behind, becoming modernity. Okay, great. Leaving traditions behind, becoming modern. Maybe becoming secular. Okay, great. What else do you think? Tolerance. Tolerance, great. Yeah, not exclusive. <laughs> yeah, good. So what did enlightenment mean for the Jews? Enlightenment, what did it mean for the Jews? So um, I think a lot about liberalism and the liberal tradition. And um, so something, you know, when I'm teaching this material, it's actually really fun because uh, um, I sort of ask students, um, what does it mean to have rights as an individual, right? And we're all over that. What does it mean to have rights as an individual? What does it mean to have civil rights? What's a right as an individual? Start with the Bill of Rights. Yeah. The right to own property, the right to own yourself, the right to work for money, right? This is why slavery is such an important, you know. And actually, Toni Morrison, who just passed away, she had this great argument that um, the idea of freedom in the Enlightenment would actually not have developed if it weren't for slavery, that we needed to have slavery in order to have the idea of freedom, that it depended on slavery, right? In order to develop an idea of what freedom was, there needed to be slaves. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating, you know, because I always think of slavery as kind of the, the thing that gave the lie to enlightenment liberalism and freedom. It was the thing that exposed the hypocrisy, but it's actually the thing that the whole discourse is built on. Okay, so what does it mean to have rights as an individual, the right to own yourself, the right to work for money, the right to vote, uh, the right to own property, the right, I don't know, what else? What are some other rights that you have as individuals? Okay, fine. The right to do none of it. Okay, the right to have a religion, to practice a religion or not practice a religion, the right, okay, fine. So now I ask my students, what does it mean to have rights as a group? And here they get really stuck. What does it mean to have rights as a group? And the answer is that in the Enlightenment tradition of liberalism, there is no such thing as group rights. You have rights as individuals, you don't have rights as groups. So what does it mean to have a right as a group? A right as a group is maybe to speak your own language, to have your own, and this was Jews in Europe, right? Jews in Europe spoke their own languages, had language, I mean, it was Yiddish, but spoke, spoke their own language, had their own court system, had their own schools, lived in autonomous communities, and then all of a sudden the Enlightenment, so you know, we have the formation of sort of, uh, of liberal states, and Jews are given the opportunity to become citizens, but it comes at a price. And the price is you can have every right as an individual. And this was actually, a French assemblyman actually said this, and you know, um, said this. Give the Jews every right as individuals. Don't give them any right as a nation. To have a nation within a nation living in our midst is intolerable, okay? So, yeah, sorry, you have a hand up. Yeah, You're asking so me, okay. My question is mm -hmm. the right to own property. Yeah. So now that is, you know, now as, as a group, you know, many times Jews were not, they did not have the right to own property. Right, in pre-modern Europe. But I'm talking now about the Enlightenment. I'm talking about modernity, right? Like in sort of the democratic state. I'm talking about in the United States. Okay. <laughs> but... It's, it, is in the, it is in the Constitution of the Declaration. Okay. But, so individual freedom versus group freedom. So Jews in, in European liberal discourse could have every right, all the rights as individuals, no rights at all as a nation. So that means they had, in order to enter civil society, they had to be made over, right? They had to change. They had to give up things. Cynthia Ozick calls this the Napoleonic bargain. You give up your language, you give up your antiquated traditions, uh, you give up, you know, you're gonna serve in our army because you're a citizen now, and that's what citizens do, but that means you can't keep kosher, you can't keep the Sabbath, you know. It's, so that's the price, that's the price of citizenship. 
So, um, so one of the things I found really interesting is like, meanwhile, at the same time, across the Atlantic, um, in, Native people are being offered the same bargain. That is to say, not being recognized as sovereign nations, but given the opportunity to become made over as individual Christian citizens, right? So like, it's a similar kind of bargain, this idea like you don't have rights as a group, but you have rights as individuals. You don't have rights as nations, within nations, but you have rights as individuals. So I was really fascinated, and that's enlightenment liberalism, right? It's the sacredness of the individual, which was radical then, but it, what does it mean for a membership in a group? And that's what I mean about the tension between being tribal, being affiliated with a group, versus being an enlightened individual, that is to say, an individual. So that's the tension that Jews are working out through kind of this imagined relationship with Indians. At least that's the argument that I had. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, lots of questions. No, no, sorry to interrupt. Um, the, the only the very big difference is Native American people were not given the choice. They, they right. were not given right. the choice to own land or to practice or not practice. They were murdered in order to transform it. Right. So, right, so I don't want to, right, but it's also the history of colonial encounters and relationships are very complicated. Um, and I also, but this issue of sovereignty and collective rights is very important, right, in Native, in native politics, right. But, but the, the kind of the framework, this idea of the Enlightenment as being coercive, right, coercive assimilation, to me it was very interesting that, and there's a scholar actually, by the way, um, who wrote a book about, also around the same time that I was working on this, where he argues that Europe developed its policy, its colonial policy around indigenous people, developed it in Europe against Jews. That is to say, the whole kind of philosophy of kind of assimilation, coercive assimilation, that was then practiced in the new world is something that was kind of rehearsed right, kind of in the old world, and who was the population was Jews, right? so internally. So um, again, my, my goal was not to say there's a similar history, or there's similarities, or there's a relationship. My goal was to try to figure out why Jews construct an imagined relationship, right? That was kind of the idea. But I have so many more images to get to, so this is the framework. Okay, <laughs> hold your questions. So okay. The other thing that I was thinking about was, in order to fully account for Jewish encounters with Indians, especially imagined, I had to really think about the role of white Christian culture as mediating this, these encounters, and that's really important. So the ways in which Americans imagined Indians changed over time. So again, none of these relationships are static, right? They change over time. So the ways in which Americans imagined Indians changed over time. So early on, it's savage foe in the early 19th century, um, and then, by the early 20th century, it's idealized first Americans. And the idealization of the Indian, another scholar argues, was, meant, was in many ways shaped uh, by anxieties over mass immigration between eight, in the 18th, beginning in the 1880s. So as soon as, so interestingly enough, in the 1870s and 80s is kind of like the last wars with native nations, right? The, the kind of like the sort of the, the, um, the last, um, uh, I don't know the, what you call it, but the last kind of like real military challenges that Native nations posed to the US government by the 1870s and 80s, it's like the definitive battles had been fought. Indians were no longer a kind of a real military threat. Um, and at the very same time, right, so they're now, it's kind of now domesticated, right? At the very same time, there's this kind of racial panic about all of the immigrants coming over from Southern and Eastern Europe. So 
all of a sudden, the, imagine, the sort of imaginary Indian in the kind of white Christian imagination, American imagination, um, uh, changes. So when Americans become panicked about um, alien, foreign Jews coming in, then all of a sudden Indians become pure and, um, and uh, um, uh, native, sort of like the idealized, you know, they're kind of the exemplary American and Jews become the exemplary alien. Does that make sense? So, so Jews and Indians sometimes are constructed as similar in the 19th century. That is to say they're both, um, uh, they're both primitive, they're both in need of Christian enlightenment, they're both vanishing or already vanished because that was actually a discourse in the 19th century, not just about Indians but also about Jews. But then in the 20th century, Jews and Indians are constructed in the American imagination as opposites. That is to say, Indians are authentic and natural and American and spiritual and Jews are alien, overly intellectual, materialistic, etc. And so Jews kind of desire to either identify or not identify with Indians is kind of conditioned by the larger culture either yoking them or not, right? So when Jews and Indians are identified by, by kind of white Christian culture, when Jews and Indians are identified together, both primitive, both in need of Christian enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera, then Jews have an incentive to disidentify with Indians. But then, of course, when they're constructed as opposites, then Jews have a sort of desire to reinscribe their relationship with Indians. So it's like a triangulated thing, right? Like you can't kind of um, dismiss the role of kind of a larger culture. Um, okay. So, so that was, those were all my kind of, that was kind of the theory, the theory section of this talk. <laughs> so Jews are constantly questioning and examining their own sense of indigenousness, that is to say, do I really belong? Do we really belong? Are we native? What is our sense of what, you know, are we at home? So Jews find in the, in, in the figure of the Indian a mirror for their what I call a simultaneous and interacting desire for and anxieties about, at the same time, tribal and national belonging. And it's very complicated, right? Because, you know, I read Jewish projections, interpretations, appropriations of imagined Indians as this like effort to negotiate between being cosmopolitan, right, a citizen of the world, versus being native, a citizen of a place, between being modern and being ancient. Um, being an individual and being a member of a collectivity. Um, and so, and what's interesting is that Jews, you know, Michael Rogan says Jews become white by putting on and taking off blackface because they want to become white and American. My argument about in sort of Jewish, what I started to call Jewish redface, it's not that they wanted to only become American, it's that also they used this imagined relationship as a way to also rediscover their Jewishness. So. Indian performances of Indianists or appropriations of Indianists would sometimes point the way forward to a kind of modern American identity, but also often pointed the way back to a kind of original Jewish identity. And meanwhile, all of these terms, Jewish, American, but like they're unstable terms, right? Like what they mean can kind of change over time. So, um, so this isn't just about race. These are about nationhood and belonging, a desire for rootedness, um, uh, a kind of embrace of diasporic identity. It can be about all those things. OK, so now the tour. So the theory is over. Now we're going to look at really interesting images, and I'm going to give you a kind of historical tour. So I start this conversation with Manasseh ben Israel. This is kind of the, the, the history of Jewish Indian identification. So in the 17th century, I'm going to go back to the 17th century, it's a really interesting time. It's a time of what we call millennial fervor. Everyone is convinced the world is going to end. Christians, Jews, 
the world is ending. Um, uh, for Jews, it's a really traumatic time. It's a time of the Chmelnitsky massacre. So the Polish Jewish population is decimated. It's the time of the false Messiah Shabtai Tzvi, when everyone thinks he's the Messiah and he's going to save the world. And um, and the Christians also think that the world is that you know that the end of days is coming. And like a certain year, it's like sixteen sixty something had been designated the end of days or whatever. So it's like it's a crazy time. And um, and the Jews. So Manasseh ben Israel was a uh, Sephardic Portuguese rabbi living in Amsterdam who really wanted, uh, he wanted to convince Oliver Cromwell had just kind of um, overseen a revolution in England and a Puritan revolution. And Manasseh ben Israel wanted to convince Oliver Cromwell to readmit the Jews officially into England. And so, because Jews had been expelled, officially expelled, there was like an underground Jewish population, but like they had been officially expelled. And the idea was that, um, and he sort of drew upon these, these uh, millennialist claims, because the idea was once Jews were found in all places on the earth, then that was a sign that the end of days was coming, um, and that would hasten, right, the second coming um, of Christ. And so, and Manasseh ben Israel wanted, you know, to convince Oliver Cromwell to readmit the Jews. So he used this story um, uh, that was narrated and was a really famous travel narrative. I became really interested in travel narratives. So, <clears throat> so there was a, a, uh, a crypto Jew, a converso, right? A Portuguese man named Antonio de Montezinos, who was a converso, right? Like he was a Christian, like he was a Jew who had converted or he hadn't converted, his parents or grandparents had. And he's a merchant and he's in Brazil and he's traveling through Brazil, and he has Indian guides. And um, a, terrible, they, they, a terrible storm um, uh, uh, falls upon them, and the Indians start crying that they're being punished for the horrible way in which they've uh, treated God's chosen people. And Montezinos is like, you should, you know, oh, and, and they also start like saying terrible things about the Spanish. And Montezinos is so kind of like committed to his mask of being a converso that he start, that he reproaches his Indian guy, like, how can you say bad things about the Spanish? So they have kind of a whole conversation about that. Then he goes back to Quito and he's imprisoned by the Inquisition, probably for being a Judaizer, right? And he's praying in prison for his life and he has a vision. And the vision is Hebrews are Indians. And so once he gets out of prison, uh, which is miraculous to begin with. He gets out of prison and he finds his Indian guide, Francisco, and he says, you have to take me to find this, this God's chosen people who you said that you, had that you had mistreated. So Francisco kind of quizzes him and finally Montezinos confesses he's actually a Jew and Francisco says, okay, and he takes him on this journey into the interior of Brazil. I know this is like a very long story, um, but it's the first chapter of Manasseh ben Israel's uh, treatise. Um, and, and Francisco introduces Montezinos to this lost tribe, right? This tribe of Indians that claim they're descended from the tribe of Reuben. And they spend all this time together, and by the end, they're calling each other brother, and then the tribe says, don't tell anyone about us, we have to remain a secret, but, but sometime soon, um, we are going to emerge, and, this, and the evil Spanish empire is going to be defeated, um, and Jews are going to kind of, you know, um, uh, what's the word, kind of resume their, their ancient glory, right? So, and that's kind of the end of the travel narrative. What is the point? The point is that the indigenous people of the New World are, are descended from the lost tribes. That is kind of the chiddish of Antonio de Montezinos' narrative. And meanwhile, he has now changed his name, and he is now Aharon Levi, right? So this is a drama about a, a passing, a Jew passing as a Christian who through his encounter with Indians rediscovers his lost Jewishness. So Antonio de Montezinos, Aharon Levi, goes, comes back to Amsterdam, and he narrates 
this story to Manasseh ben Israel, it then becomes famous. It's like circulated all over Europe in multiple languages. And Manasseh ben Israel makes it the first chapter of his treatise that is meant to convince Oliver Cromwell to readmit the Jews um, into England. And it's called The Hope of Israel, Esperanza de Israel. It was also translated into multiple languages. And the Puritans, for the Puritans, this travel narrative became a really important text. And this is when we talk about the 10 Lost Tribes theories, which you've probably heard of, that Indians are descended from the 10 Lost Tribes. This is kind of the origin story. Um, OK, let's keep going. So this is the, the Relacion of Antonio de Montesinos. And this is just like, it's, it's online. What's fascinating about it is that it was, it was circulated in multiple languages. In, Latin, in English, in Spanish, in Dutch, in Yiddish eventually, in Hebrew. You know, so it became, it's a really interesting example of a story that really traveled between Christian and Puritan communities. Um, it became important in Latin America too. It's like this really fascinating travel narrative. And, uh, but for me, what's interesting about it is, is that it's not that, it's, it's that, it's this idea that Indians are really Jews, but also that Antonio Montesinos himself as a protagonist is really interesting because his encounter with Jews helps him rediscover his Jewishness. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, fine. Mordechai Noah. So this is another figure that I became super interested in. Um, he was an early 19th century Jewish playwright and diplomat who believed that Indians were the descendants of the 10 Lost Tribes. And he wrote a play in 1819. It was a really popular play um, featuring one of the first Indian characters on stage. Um, and this Indian character actually is, um, and this is pretty a, a really interesting move, the Indian character becomes the kind of mouthpiece for sort of the sentiments of the Declaration of Independence. So it's the Indian character on stage who's kind of talking about liberty and freedom and emancipation. Um, there's not a single Jewish character in the play, but Mordechai Noah was really well known as a Jewish playwright. Um, so he's just a kind of a fascinating figure. But what's also interesting about him is that he had this project, um, you know, uh, 60 years before the official birth of Zionism, he decided that, you know, there were so many Jewish refugees in the world, it's the 1820s, so many Jewish refugees in the world that they need a place of refuge, and he um, decided to create a Jewish sovereign nation in upstate New York. The joke is that he was like a few hundred miles off course, right? Like it should have been Manhattan, but <laughs> it was ha ha ha. But um, it's like scholar humor. So he, so it's like near Buffalo. And he bought an island, it's native land, right? And he bought this island and he named it Ararat, which of course is the mountain that um, Noah's Ark landed on. And, um, and he had this very elaborate ceremony where he said, this is going to be the sovereign nation of the Jews where Jewish refugees the world over can come. And, um, and he wrote a Declaration of Independence. That's what he called it. It's a Declaration of Independence. And then he invited all of his Indian brethren to come and join him in this new nation of Ararat, which of course, like, I mean, and he had bought it native land. But like, and it's, it's just really interesting. Anyway, he's a really interesting figure, very theatrical. Um, but this idea of a sovereign nation is so complicated, right? And like in the Declaration of Independence, he says, for Ararat, he says, I am declaring Ararat a sovereign, a Jewish sovereign nation under the auspices and protections of the United States of America, right? So he's like really, so he's having, and, and he considered himself also a tremendous patriot who was a diplomat, um, a judge, you know. So fascinating figure. So this was someone else who I was interested in in terms of this long history of Jewish Indian imagined encounter. You look like you had a question. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I wanted to raise it before, but it fits now as well. So was it, wasn't he just modeling the reservation? Yes, the which didn't exist yet. They hadn't, didn't exist Not yet? in the 1820s, no. But 
but native tribes are signing treaties with the US government and giving up land, right? I mean, this, this idea of a sovereign nation, you know, um, and this idea of a domestic dependent nation, right? This is the Supreme Court trying to figure out what is the status of native nations? Are they sovereign independent nations who can make treaties with the US or not? So this is before reservations, but certainly in the kind of treaty making phase of, of native US government native relations. Um, so he's quite a fascinating figure, and there's much more to say about him, but this is a very quick tour, so we're going to keep going. Okay, so, and then he wrote a whole treatise on the evidence that American Indians were the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. So this was a theory, and this is a theory that kept coming back. So it's a theory in the 17th century that's very popular. It comes back during the revolution, because the revolution is also, like, there's a lot of millennial end-of-the-world fervor that accompanies the revolution, the American Revolution. It's back here in the 1820s, so periodically it kind of comes back. Okay, um, let's keep going. Um, yeah, Mordechai Noah, by the way, I'll just say something about Mordechai Noah. He, he's a figure who's really interesting because writers are fascinated by Mordechai Noah. So there's this whole crop of contemporary writers who write novels about Mordechai Noah. So for instance, um, well, this started a long time ago. So Israel Zangwill, who was a, a writer of the turn of the century, of the turn of the 19th century, right? So he's a writer. He wrote The Melting Pot in 1909, you know, very famous Anglo, uh, English Jewish writer. But he wrote a short story where he imagines um, that this, this um, uh, I guess, a Polish Jew heeds Noah's call, you know, for Jews to come to Ararat, and he goes to Ararat. And of course, there's nobody there, right? Like, you know, it just, it never happened. And so he's all alone on the island. And the only other person on the island um, is, is an Indian. And the two of them kind of have this friendship, you know? And so that's the story that Zangwill writes in the 1900s about Mordechai Noah. Now there's a, an Israeli novelist wrote a novel called Israel, where she imagines that Ararat really did become the Jewish nation, not Israel. So in, in her imagined, in her alternative counter, counter history, speculative fiction, Ararat is the Jewish state. Um, ben Katcher is a contemporary Jewish graphic novelist who wrote a graphic novel called The Jew of New York, where Mordechai Noah is a character. So like Mordechai Noah is a really fascinating figure, and a lot of contemporary Jewish writers are really interested in him. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Okay, this is a different guy. So, okay, so, so I was kind of making categories, so I became really interested in these travel narratives, narratives of encounter, um, uh, and that's why Montezinos, and then, and then Tanmos tribes theories, and then I became interested in sort of this idea of the Jewish anthropologist, right? Because as we know, Anthropology is like, anthropology has kind of an unacknowledged, right, Jewish origin. And so, so many Jewish anthropologists, especially at the sort of early, from the early 1900s through the 20th century, Jewish anthropologists were studying native people of the Americas. And so there's this weird way in which Jews became these kind of interpreters um, and authorities on native cultures, but they weren't doing it as Jews, right? They were doing it as anthropologists. So I was really interested in this idea of the Jewish anthropologist, right? So Franz Boas is kind of like the perfect example. So this is a guy who sort of started to seem to me to be the first Jewish anthropologist. And his name is Solomon Nunes de Carvalho. And he was a photographer and painter um, and ethnographer. And he was invited to accompany an expedition in the 1840s 
an expedition um, of Colonel Fremont to find a northern route through the Rockies for the railroad. And he wanted, he had the novel idea of photographing the expedition. And, and Solomon Inez de Carvalho was a Caribbean Jew, by the way, um, from the Caribbean. But he, and then living in the South, living in New Orleans, and um, he had developed this really novel technology where he could take daguerreotypes without a lot of the clunky equipment. He actually invented this kind of mobile technology for photography, for taking daguerreotypes. So Fremont invited him to come along and photograph the expedition. And he was like this city slicker. Um, you know, and like, look at him, he's gorgeous, and like cosmopolitan and urbane, he's an artist or whatever, and like he goes on this adventure at which is like, is a terrible, I mean, it's like horrible what happens to them. They're stranded in the Rockies, they have to eat their horses, you know, like all this stuff, terrible happens. And he writes a, a memoir about it called, um, what is it called? The Incidents of Travel and Adventure in the Far West. <laughs> so, he, um, so he's an ethnographer in the sense that, first of all, he never admits that he's Jewish, ever, right? Um, except at one key part in the narrative. But he takes pictures of um, all of the sort of native tribes that they encounter on the way. By the way, the expedition was 22 men. Half of them were Delaware, right? And two of them were Mexican. Um, so it's this like totally multiracial, multi-ethnic kind of ex like expedition party. And then there's Fremont, who's this really famous uh, explorer at the time. So yeah, let's keep going to the next slide. So he, for instance, this is one of the few daguerreotypes that survived. A lot of them were destroyed in a fire. So pictures of teepees. So he's kind of like chronicling this, this adventure. Here, we'll keep going to the next one. Um, he made drawings based on his, his daguerreotype. So this is a lithograph based on a daguerreotype. And he would get, he was a portrait painter. That's what he did for a living in New Orleans. So he loved to get people to sit for their portraits. And he was really proud of the fact that he could speak several languages and that people would talk to him. And he, he started mediating, right? There was like a conflict between the expedition and one of the tribes that they encounter. And he kind of mediates the conflict. So he becomes this kind of like performing this kind of cosmopolitan role of observer, ethnographer, mediator, um, and, uh, and chronicler. And so he's you know, taking portraits of all of the people. This is a Cheyenne Bell. This, I don't think this is his title, but it's based on his daguerreotype. And we'll, another, next one. Um, OK, oh, that's a whole other story. OK, anyway. So I was really interested in, in Carvalho, because at one point in the narrative, so they've been stranded in the Rockies. They're starving. It's the one time that he admits that he's, kind of admits that he's Jewish, because he says that everyone killed and ate the horses, and that he couldn't bring himself to eat horse meat or blood because he calls it forbidden food. It's like the one time that you're like, forbidden food, why? Oh, you know, he's a Jew. So, um, and then he says that um, when they're finally rescued um, by Mormons, um, he, he says that he, he says, I didn't even know who I was anymore. I was breaking up and all of the Mormons thought that I was an Indian. So, this, so it's only when his identity is in total crisis that he kind of admits that he's a Jew, um, is mistaken for an Indian, but then as he recovers among the Mormons, he kind of, you know, becomes his sort of ethno, kind of ethno, ethnographer self. So he's a really fascinating figure. This is another story that I thought was really interesting. It's another story of encounter. So this is the story of Chief Nahum Blanberg, a totally fictional character um, that migrated through the Jewish press as if it were a true story. Um, probably based on the story of Solomon Bebo, who is also like another local figure here. Um, and Solomon Bebo was, Solomon Bebo, the actual person, was a Prussian Jewish immigrant who lived among the Acoma Pueblo, Pueblo and eventually was elected governor, but was like a really contentious 
Um, he was a really contentious governor, and eventually he left, and he moved to San Francisco. So he was kind of an actual person. But um, yeah, he, no, he was an actual person. But Nahum Glanbrook, so this story appeared first in, in, a, in an English uh, Jewish newspaper called like the American Hebrew. And this is the story of Nahum Blomberg, who um, he's a Polish immigrant, and he comes to America, and they say to him in America, this was published kind of in the kind of 19, early, early 1900s, and the immigration officials say to him, you should really go west. You're a strapping young man. There's lots of opportunity for you out west. So he goes west, and he, um, and he lives among the Indians, and he you know, um, gains their trust, and he advocates for them, and eventually he's elected their chief. So again, totally fictional piece, and it appears in like the American Hebrew. Then a few months later, it appears in the American Israelite, like another English um, language Jewish newspaper. And then a few months later, it appears in Yiddish, in Warsaw, right? In like a Yiddish newspaper. And every time it appears in these different, every time it migrates through these different newspapers and between languages, it changes, the story changes. Um, and I was really interested in this, like, and how, you know, why are people so interested in Nahum Blamberg, and like, what are the changes depending on the, who the audience is? So the story in Yiddish is really different from the story in Yiddish, you know. So it's sort of like this, um, these stories of encounter are really fascinating. And Blamberg, you know, Nahum Blamberg, what's interesting about him is that he, um, well, there's much more to say. It's so complicated, and there's so much to talk about. So I'm just going to leave that. So I'm going to be one of those people who says, read my book. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, but it was just, you know, how do these stories migrate through different, um, different venues for different audiences? What changes for which audience, um, to me, became a really interesting question. And all of the different and really conflicting desires that were being addressed through this complicated figure. So for instance, in some versions of the story, Nahum Blomberg converts all the Indians to Judaism. Right? And in some versions of the story, he doesn't, but he sees that they're being exploited by like the corrupt Indian agent, and so he advocates for them and he rescues them, right? So he becomes kind of this weird labor organizer. And, um, and in some versions of the story, you know, so like it's, it's all of these really conflicted feelings that are, or kind of identifications that are being worked out through this story. So sometimes Nahum Blomberg is like, is basically like a Christian missionary where he's converting the Indians to Judaism, and he's like the white savior who's rescuing them. And then sometimes he's kind of a Moses who's liberating them. So all of these different versions of Nahum Blamberg. OK, so then a whole different category, and that is this category of what I call uh, Jewish red face, that is to say performance. Um, and beginning in the early 1900s, you see um, a whole kind of vaudeville um, a, a vaudeville discourse. First of all, vaudeville is filled with interracial play. Jews didn't only perform, uh, didn't only put on blackface and redface. People performed as each other. There were black performers who performed as Jews. There were Irish performers who performed as black. There were male performers who performed as women, right? So there's all sorts of like gender and race and ethnicity crossing that was happening in vaudeville in the early 1900s. So I think that's just really important to put out there um, that everyone is kind of performing as each other. Um, but I'm gonna start with a contemporary example and then we'll kind of work backwards into some of the earlier stuff. So let's play the clip from Blazing Saddles. You must all know this clip, right? Okay, so we're gonna do a little close reading. Okay, that's like the most important line of the whole thing. So we can like stop there. So, and the rest is history. So the framing to me is really interesting because of course, 
I mean, the clip, there's lots to say, but it's playing on a few things. First of all, it's playing on a kind of a, um, a kind of conventional wisdom that in Hollywood, most uh, in sort of Indian roles in movies were played by Jewish performers. That was kind of like something that people talk about all the time, that like Jewish actors, because of their kind of ethnic ambiguity, were often playing these native roles. So there's definitely, that's, that's a joke here. But, um, but also, this moment where the Gene Wilder character says to, by the way, this movie was written by Mel Brooks with assistance from Richard Pryor. So Richard Pryor doesn't get credit, he's not credited, but he helped to write this film. So, um, so when Gene Wilder says to, I don't remember the name of the actor who plays the, I don't remember, I don't remember either. Yeah, but when he says, what is a dazzling urban intellectual like you doing in a place like this, who in American culture were dazzling urban intellectuals, Jews, right? So there's this weird way in which this kind of language of like, you're an urban intellectual, what are you doing here? And playing with this idea of like, and also like, what were the landscapes associated both with Jews and with blacks? urban spaces, right? Jews and blacks are never included in the history of westward expansion, which of course they were part of their his that history. They were there, right? Um, as were Asian immigrants, forced laborers, as were, right? So the, the role of people of color and of women in this history of westward expansion is something that has not been acknowledged in the kind of popular histories um, of, and celebrations and romanticizations of the West. And instead, Jews and blacks also are associated with these kind of like urban, right? Like urban landscapes, urban environments. So there's, it's really, to me, really interesting when, you know, what's a dazzling urban intellectual like you doing in a place like this? You know, what's he saying, right? He's saying like, what is your place in this history? Okay, so then of course the joke of like Mel Brooks is the Indian chief, he's speaking Yiddish, he's saying this idea that he lets them go because he recognizes that like they have some kind of, you know, um, uh, affiliation, um, sympathetic identification, then of course. Saying they are even darker than us. That's exactly what he says. He goes, have you ever seen anything in your life? They're even darker than us, right? So what is happening there? Um, and then, of course, at the end, I love this line, and the rest is history. Because, of course, it's not history, right? Like, the role of people of color and of Jews and of, you know, are not included in the history book. So this is kind of calling attention, you know. So, so what's interesting about these, like, herb, these vaudeville performances, what is happening? They're not... These vaudeville performances, unlike kind of Michael Rogan's argument about the jazz singer, you know, they're not, Jews' identities in these performances are not really being fixed as white, but rather they're being, it's being called, it's calling attention to the fact that they are Jews. Their Jewishness is the thing that is being staged. And these performances mark this moment that Jews and other urban ethnics kind of decide that they are going to write themselves in and enter kind of this Buffalo Bill version of America, which is a mythos from which they had historically been excluded. You know, so, you know, one scholar writes, these productions dwell, quote, on the relationship between the excluded. So rather than substituting one group for another, they make humor from the outsider status of both Indians and Jews. But to what extent is this performance participating in this tradition that it's ridiculing, right? Is it really critiquing or is it kind of participating? So, um, so going back now to the 1900s, here are some early, earlier examples. These are kind of um, song lyrics and posters from the 19-teens. But I'm a Yiddish cowboy. In the lyrics, the Yiddish cowboy marries an Indian maiden. 
Um, and that's, of course, like absurd and ridiculous, right, in the world of the song. And here there are more. Um, let's go to the next one. Thanks. Um, Fanny Bryce, a really, really famous performance of I'm an Indian. You can actually listen to her singing it online. Um, and she sings it in a very, very exaggerated Yiddish accent. Um, and uh, and it's, it's just, you know, it's just a, a really fascinating kind of set of, um, set of performances. Moshe from Nova Scotia. So Moshe here is an Eskimo, right? Uh, let's keep going. These are just examples. Big Chief Mose, Big Chief Dynamite. Also, just even in the typologies here, really reaching into these kind of like uh, sort of phys physiognomic, I guess, stereotypes about like Jewish faces. Um, so Big Chief Dynamite is actually a response to I'm a Yiddish cowboy, because in this version, um, he becomes a, um, uh, an Indian freedom fight fighter and blows up, right, like kind of starts attacking kind of white, um, white civilization. But I just want to point out like, you know, the diamond and the lapel, right? Like these are kind of like really stereotypical representations of Jews and then kind of like combined with the feathered headdress which has the American flag on it. Um, and then here, um, Big Chief Moe's, Big Chief Moe's an Indian with a Yiddish nose, right? So like these are, again, making humor from this kind of absurd relationship, but to what extent is it you know, really critiquing kind of the really problematic representations of both Indians and Jews? And there's been some really interesting work on um, that what these songs are really meant to illustrate is that the limits of uh, the, that the possibilities for true Jewish integration into a kind of an American culture is really very limited, that they are not, that they are, it's kind of like accentuating their outsider status. Um, okay, so, uh, so let's keep going. So this is another variety of engagement that I call ideological engagement. So um, another variety. So Marxism and Zionism specifically. So, um, so Der Hammer was the communist Yiddish newspaper um, and in 1928, they had a special Indian issue. And this is the cover. Um, and there's another writer I'm going to talk about where his stories kind of appear in this Indian issue for the first time before they're published as a book. So the entire issue is devoted to um, native history, the history of colonization, um, native um, uh, kind of they, they kind of translate some ethnographic material from, from English language sources. Um, but this is a communist paper, and so they have a really kind of um, radical orientation. So the, the um, so yeah, exactly. The, sorry, the writing at the bottom, the, what do you call it, the title? Sorry, again, losing my vocabulary. An Emerser 100% Americaner, an Indianer Funim Shevet Navajo. Okay a true 100% American and Indian from the Navajo tribe. So using this language 100%, so in, in the 1920s, remember that 1924 is when the Reed Johnson Act is passed. This is the pinnacle of anti-immigration um, legislation. It establishes really restrictive quota, quotas, ends Jewish immigration um, from Europe completely, um, as well as from southern, um, other areas of southern Europe, kind of like really exclusive, and also definitively, definitively ends immigration from Asia. So 1924 is a really important kind of mark marker. It's representing the kind of height of anti-immigrant anti rhetoric and racial panic. But one of these, one of these terms that um, anti-immigrant activists often used was, I'm 100% American. As opposed to a naturalized American citizen, they were 100% American. So 
the editors, the radical editors of Der Hammer are saying, no, this is 100% American, right? So like, you know, um, anti-immigrant um, anti uh, agitators would, would use this language of like, I'm 100 percenter, as to put like, I'm not an immigrant, I'm 100 percenter, right? So they are reclaiming that language. Um, and this is the cover. So let's keep going to the next slide. So that's what I call an ideological engagement. This is another what I, like ideological engagement, this time anti-fascist from the 1930s, 1940s. Um, and the idea here is that, um, this must be from the 1940s. So the idea here is that Jews in Europe are being treated like cattle, but but actually, this language of reservations is they're being treated like Native Americans, right? So, so this kind of like, um, uh, and this is coming from an anti, uh, a very um, an anti-fascist artist. Um, here, let's keep going. So these are, you know, what I, ideological engagements, but just to say, like making making an argument. Um, so this is Sheen Dekzel, a Yiddish writer. And again, remember that 1928 special issue of Der Hammer was the first time that a lot of his stories appeared. And he's really fascinating. By the way, a bunch of Yiddish writers became kind of famous for writing about Native Americans um, in Yiddish. Um, so Isaac Raboy wrote a book called Der Yiddisher Cowboy. Um, and then a bunch of writers, writer, Jewish writers on the left writing in English became really famous for writing about um, for kind of alluding to or, or writing about Native Americans. So for instance, um, Howard Fast's The Last Frontier, um, John Sanford's The People from Heaven. These are all novels published in the 30s and 40s, firmly entrenched in a kind of left radical tradition and calling upon and really using Native history to construct um, an anti-fascist, anti-colonialist um, uh, anti argument. Um, so Dexel is a communist, a Yiddish writer who is a communist, and in 1959, uh, he finally traveled in book form um, uh, the stories that he had first published in Der Hammer. And, um, and it's, the book is interesting because it has a new preface, and it's informed both by his radical left-wing politics, but also by a kind of post-Holocaust um, uh, effort to memorialize Yiddish, which I'm going to talk about in a second. So he basically, it's based, sort of based on his true adventures. He, you know, he went uh, two years uh, tramping across America. Yeah, yeah, a Trump, Iberland, and keep going. And he publishes these photographs with the, this is the frontispiece of the book. So again, you know, Indiana, Sherdotselungen, Indian stories, and like, you know, mapped onto this Pacific Northwest um, figure. So that's the title page. And then there are photographs in the book of him kind of with his, here, let's go to the next slide. Thank you. Um, and this is the preface. Sorry, I didn't get to the photographs yet. I'll get to the photographs. So this is the preface, which I think is really interesting. My new book is not only fine literature, not only an altogether new theme in Yiddish language, but it's also very dear to me in the sad fact that in a large number of particulars, Indian history is so similar in its fate with our own people. In each story, there are interwoven historical true chapters and the bloody history of the red men, sad facts of a history of a people who have been brutally robbed, not only of their immense, grand, rich, and beautiful land, which now bears the proud name America, talk about mixed messages there, and, but who, along with their culture and beliefs, have been the targets of an effort to annihilate and destroy. Perhaps this book will be at least one step in the powerful way which will certainly, sooner or later, help erode the present malice and desolation in the world and help build a brotherly future for humankind in a peaceful world. Again, dear friends, thank you for your help. And let us hope that the prophets who spoke of the Holocaust of our language and literature will be discovered to be false prophets and that our dear, heartfelt mother tongue with our literature, just like our people and our culture, will continue to flourish. I know I read that very fast. But it's, 
he's doing so many interesting things in this preface because it's an effort to uh, keep Yiddish alive. Again, think about the, the kind of invocations of both tribal and universalist identity. That is to say, he's saying like, in particulars, our histories are similar, but also this is all about the future of humankind, right? So this is kind of a universalist argument, but he's talking about kind of like this tribal, these two tribal um, kind of collectivities. And then of course, all informed by a post-Holocaust effort to memorialize Yiddish. And he accompanies the text with these photographs of him kind of like interacting with his native interlocutors. So here's where the photographs come in, sorry. <laughs> so that's him. There's a story called My Indian Mother where he gets adopted. Um, and that's, of course, the, that's him um, in red face, I guess you would say. That's him telling a story, right? So again, like in this kind of costume. So I'm just interested in the ways in which a lot of the Jewish writers that, I'm look, that I looked at kind of present themselves as what I started to call privileged interpreters, that they have a special inside track, right? That if anyone can represent um, and mediate between Indians and white Gentile culture, it's Jews. You know, so this idea of being kind of the privileged interpreter, like what, you know, what is the, you know, why? Like what, what's, the, what's the kind of credibility that Jews, uh, or social capital that Jews get there? Let's keep going. Okay, that's just more images of him. Again, like it's kind of this combination of the ethnographic, right? Look at me, like doing all of these things, um, you know, with fiction, because some of the stories in the collection are fiction. And let's keep going. Okay, so here's another, a, a contemporary example. Um, and that's Michael Shaban, the Yiddish Policeman's Union, um, which sort of like, like those, all those novels about um, Mordechai Noah imagines a kind of counterfactual, it's a speculative fiction that imagines an alternative history where um, this proposal to bring Jewish refugees to Alaska actually comes to pass. And all of these, and Alaska, Sitka Alaska becomes this kind of Yiddish, uh, Yiddish speaking enclave of Jewish refugees operating in a kind of semi-autonomous state. Um, but now there are kind of 50 years of refuge is coming to an end and Sitka is gonna be given back to Alaska and all the Jews who live there as refugees are once again going to be stateless. Has anyone read this novel? Okay, so it's really, really interesting. And of course, one of the, it's also what? It, no, it's very funny. It's really very funny, but, but one of the really central, really interesting kind of set pieces of the narrative is the ways in which kind of these Jewish refugees interact with all of the indigenous people um, of, of, of Sitka. So that's kind of, and it, it reminds me of the Dakesell kind of centerpiece, right? So writers like Howard Fast and Henry Roth, and also Indian activists like Vine Deloria saw a kinship between a Jewish history of exile and the restoration of a national homeland and a native desire for territorial sovereignty in the face of exile and dispossession. But post-1967, this becomes an increasingly contested and strained identification. And so I became really interested in this idea of competitive memory and the ways in which in the contemporary, kind of from the late 60s, 70s, 80s on, um, contemporary Jews and native assertions of territori territoriality and sovereignty um, uh, are sort of exercised in this very competitive and charged landscape of contemporary identity politics. And Palestinians, and what's really interesting is that we add kind of a third element to this um, competing claims of kinship, and that is Palestinians start to argue that they are like Indians, not Jews, but Palestinians. So you have kind of these competitive claims of kinship with Indians that erupt around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that these are connected to kind of um, 
conversations about ethnic power in American culture. So we'll so a couple more pictures and then end. So this is a T-shirt um, that in Israel from the from the early two thousands. So again, who's affiliating with who, right? Like who's actually like, you know, it's like um, weaponizing a kind of imagined relationship. So Ehud, let me tell you about trading land for peace. Okay, so this is, is, is kind of a certain political orientation um, of Israelis claiming kinship with Native Americans, using Native Americans to make kind of political arguments. But then, and by the way, I saw both of these things happen kind of at the same time, right? So that T-shirt, and then the next image, that's like the same, <laughs> you know, at the same time. So the Indian wars are not over, Mrs. Rice, we are still here too. These are Palestinian protesters dressed in, right, stereotypical Indian uh, costumes. And, and they are saying to Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State, the Indian wars are not over, we are still here. That is to say, the Palest so this kind of claim of kinship of Palestinians now. Right, so that's like that's the competitive, the competitive element of this memory. Okay, so in conclusion, um, and then I'm going to talk about like where I'm going from here. So my larger purpose again was not to kind of like make a judgment about who has right. In either case, I think Native people are being used as kind of like in service to other right people's arguments. Right, so it's not. This is really not about Native people at all, or Native politics, or Native claims, or Right? They're being kind of instrumentalized in a way that's really, really problematic. But my larger purpose was not to argue that there's a special relationship between Jews and Indians or there actually are parallels or similarities or whatever. That was not, um, that's not what I set out to do, but rather I was really interested in why relationships are kind of imaginatively produced and invoked and fought over, right? So that was really, you know, I don't presume to argue that they're actually analogies or parallels, or I'm not going to kind of, you know, who has the greater claim of kinship, or that, that wasn't the point at all. It was really to kind of wonder, you know, what do groups and individuals get out of, out of using a kind of rhetoric of similarity in kinship? Um, and, that these argue, and that these kind of um, various kinds of Jewish identifications or disidentifications or projections of Indians are driven um, not just by a desire to fix a kind of marginal racial identity as white and therefore American, because that was the kind of scholarly uh, um, context I was working in, but rather be, as a way of kind of negotiating what I, what I thought of as a kind of unresolved dialectic between liberalism and tribalism. And what's distinct about America is that it somehow permits Jews to be both, right? Both individuals and members of a tribe. So when you can be both, Right? How do you resolve that tension? OK, so now where do I go from here? What am I working on now? And I know um, I want us to leave a little time for questions. OK, so um, when I wrote the book, I was really thinking a lot about the US. And then I started thinking, well, what happens if you look at Canada? What happens if you look at Latin America? Those places are different. Um, so I started looking. Here, we'll go to the next image. Um, uh, there's a uh, some background. Yeah, there's a wet, um, a digital magazine and podcast coming out of Montreal called Shtetl Montreal. It doesn't exist anymore because the, no, 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 let's go back, yeah, no, 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 yeah, there we go, yeah. <laughs> okay, go back to the Shtetl Montreal, go back one, yeah, perfect, okay. So um, the woman who actually runs this um, digital magazine and podcast, she actually, she, she actually moved to Israel, but Shtetl Montreal, um, and it's, it's kind of like very, 
Um, the whole point of Shuttle Montreal is to kind of show that um, I had this long interview with her um, where I was really asking her, like, what do you want to do with Shuttle Montreal? What's the point? And she said, you know, she really wants to kind of, that Jewish identity in Canada developed in a very distinct political and social context, very different from the U.S. I think in the U.S., she said, there's like many, many different ways of being Jewish. But she said in Canada, it's not really like that. Um, the Canadian Jewish community tends to be a little bit more... Um, uh, not willing to really kind of acknowledge its own diversity. And what she wanted to do was kind of represent how diverse um, Jewish life in Canada could really be. And also kind of, she's really interested in cosmopolitanism and kind of global Jewish identity. And so she, and she's a lefty and an activist and all those things. And so she, um, she did a special issue of Shtetl Montreal that she called Indigenous Shtetl, where the whole point was to bring together Jews um, and Native Canadians in a conversation about what, you know, what are some shared, what are some kind of shared preoccupations and points of contact. Um, so this was a special edition. Okay, so one of the things, for instance, this was happening, this was a few, a few years ago, this was a time where, uh, so Chief Teresa, um, Chief Teresa Spence was, um, I don't know what's happening with my slideshow. Oh, it's automatically going. Okay, that's so funny. Okay, so Chief Chief Teresa Spence <laughs> was a she's she's Canadian a Canadian um, very very visible activist who was demanding a meeting with the Prime Minister, and she went on a fast until he would meet with her and really and really kind of acknowledge the fact that Native communities in Canada that there's a kind of unresolved colonial relationship and that you know there's a lot of a lot of work that the government needs to do and you know a whole a lot of a lot of really interesting. Um, kind of protest and activism around the oppression of Native people in Canada. And she went on a fast. And so until he would meet with her. And, um, and uh, so this issue came out, this, this particular um, story came out around Purim. And, um, and the, the magazine called her kind of a modern day Queen Esther, which I thought was really, really fascinating, right? A modern day Esther fasting before she goes to meet the king. Um, Idol No More was the name, it still exists, but it's, it's kind of a pan-native movement in Canada um, around um, really protesting the oppression of native people. Um, and it has a lot of, I mean, it, it really, there's a lot of traction in Canada. We haven't talked about it so much in the US, but in Canada, it's really been a very important movement that's really made very visible uh, the ways in which native communities are still in a kind of colonial relationship with the Canadian government. Um, and the the movement is called Idol No More. And so this came out, um, this is another image. This is a, a Canadian rabbi meeting um, within, um, uh, right, exactly. And this idea, this Leviticus quote, thou shalt not stand idly by. So really trying to make a connection between kind of Jews um, and native peoples of Canada around kind of these shared, um, shared liberatory principles. And then this came out, Passover, Slaves No More, um, a special Passover Seder in honor of Idol No More. Um, that was uh, the Mile End Chavura is, uh, is a kind of progressive Chavura in Montreal. And so they did a whole Seder in honor of Idol No More. And meanwhile, in Canada, there are many, many artists and writers who identify as both Native and Jewish. Um, and so they have also been contributing quite a bit to this, this digital journal. So this is just kind of just really interesting. So I'm thinking about Canada as kind of a different, you know, different things going on in Canada. And then I've been thinking a lot also about Latin America. And so um, I became really, really interested. Um, this is just an example of what's happening now, what I'm writing about now. Um, uh, in uh, Cuban, so Hatway here, the next slide. Let's go to Hatway. 
Hatue in Cuba is a kind of national hero. He's a really famous figure in the 16th century. Um, he led a, a rebellion against the Spanish. He was captured. He was burned at the stake. Um, and then he became kind of reclaimed in the Cuban fight for independence in the late 19th century against Spain. Hatue became kind of reclaimed as a national hero, as a national freedom fighter. Um, and uh, so in the 1930s, a Yiddish-speaking immigrant named Oscar um, Penis, which I know is kind of, I can't say that without laughing. So when he moved, when he moved to the States, I'm sorry, when he moved to the US, he actually used the name Asher Penn. So I'm gonna just call him that. But here, we're gonna go to the next slide. I'm so silly. Yeah, we're punchy. Okay, so he was a Polish immigrant. Uh, survived a pogrom, came to Cuba as a very young kid, 15 years old, um, and became a poet. And he co-edited uh, this Yiddish literary journal. And he wrote a, an epic poem. I mean, it's like 150 pages long, an epic poem about Hatwe. And he writes this whole preface where he says, you know, Cuba opened, Cuba became my adopted homeland. And Hatwe in Cuba is like, uh, you know, such an important figure. And so my ode to Hatwe is like my homage to my second homeland. And so he wrote this amazing epic poem about Hatwe that then got translated into Spanish. So that's him, that's Asher Penn. That's um, the journal that he co-edited. That in the square, that's an, act, that's an ad for the Spanish translation of, of Hatwe that was done by a non-Jewish Cuban poet who didn't know Yiddish, so he worked with a Yiddish speaker who could give him a literal translation, and then he sort of made it poetic. And that Spanish version of Hatwe became incredibly popular in Cuba. And most people don't know that it was actually a Yiddish poem. So the reason why this is interesting, so I'm very interested in this, but then what's interesting is that Hatwe has now had a second life because Frank London, who's this kind of avant-garde, klezmer, jazz artist, uh, wrote an opera about Hatwe. Um, and uh, the opera, here, let's go to the next slide. This is the cover of the Spanish version of Hatwe. This is all in the, in the 30s. And again, there's like a lot more, I have a piece coming out about this. So there's like a lot more to say because it's like really complicated, of course, and rich, and there's a lot of really interesting, um, but I don't have time. So, but that's Hatwe. But then, so Frank London, so this is, oh, this is kind of quotes from Hatwe um, that, you know, just talking about how important Hatwe is in Cuba and that, that because Cuba adopted me, my love for Cuba means that I also love Hatwe and I'm writing about him, whatever. But meanwhile, um, what's interesting about this poet is that after just a few years in Cuba, he moved to the US. So that's also really interesting. Um, OK, so let's go to the next slide. So Frank London created this opera uh, about Hatwe called uh, Memory of Fire. But what's really fascinating about it, so now um, there's a framing story. So initially, he and his librettist, they wanted the opera to be in Yiddish, Spanish, Taino, which is the indigenous language of Cuba, um, and English. And, um, and they put a framing story. So in the framing story, Oscar Penis, the poet, um, has come to Cuba, and it's the 1930s. And there's a dictator, right, Machado's, Machado's regime. And it's the 1930s, and he hangs out in this nightclub, and he falls in love with the singer of the nightclub, uh, Tamina, who is descended from Taino Indians. And Tamina, so she's, she's Afro-indigenous Afro Cuban. 
and she is involved in a um, in sort of a underground guerrilla anti machado movement, and she kind of draws him in into the movement, into all of her kind of anti machado activities. And meanwhile, she gives him the idea to write an epic poem about Hatway. So the action of the opera moves back and forth between the 1930s and Machado and Oscar and and Tamina and their kind of interracial romance, and then the world of the poem. Um, of Hatway in the 16th century, and Hatway and the and the scenes that are the poem are in Yiddish. So you have Hatway and the Spanish conquistadors in right in, singing in Yiddish, yeah, which is amazing. And then the scenes in the nightclubs uh, in the in the 1930s happen in Spanish and in English. So this is a really interesting like why now, right? Like why is Frank London doing this now? Um, which is really interesting. And then um, they brought the opera to Cuba and it got performed in Cuba. So when the opera went to Cuba and got performed in Cuba, this is, uh, that's the company, Opera de la Calle, was what the company that performed in Cuba. And this happened in kind of the last years of Obama's presidency. So this became, this got a lot of press in Cuba and in America. So in Cuba, it became a kind of sign of sort of opening relationships between Cuba and the US, right? It became this kind of like, look, like we have this new relationship with the US, things are opening up. And then of course in America, the press was, you know, the curiosity of a Yiddish poem about Cuba, you know, so it was kind of like for its exotic curiosity sort of whatever. But, but in Cuba, it became a kind of sign of um, op renewed diplomatic relations. But then uh, Trump got elected and made some different decisions about Cuba. And when I saw it, they brought it to New Jersey. And when I saw it, it was happening in a totally different context. That is to say that now um, it's being consumed both in Cuba and in the States as a, as a protest against Trump, right? So now it's like, it's, you know, it becomes a kind of pro-immigrant um, uh, sort of story. It's just, you know, the politics, the, the kind of um, symbolism of the opera has really changed. Here, and we're going to the last slide. Um, and this is just, this is a still from the, um, from the opera. So when I saw it, you know, um, the audience really consumed it as um, this is a story about oppression and liberation, and this is a story about immigrants. Um, and this is, you know, they were really kind of, you know, and there were people in the audience who stood up and said, um, you know, when I was growing up in Puerto Rico, nobody ever talked about the Taino population, but it's really important for us to, you know, to really kind of acknowledge this whole history. It was really fascinating. So people kind of consumed this opera in a really interesting way as about more than Jewish immigrants um, really kind of accessing their own kind of memories of, um, of fascism or of trauma or of oppression. So one of the things that I talk about at the end, you know, um, something that we talk about a lot is this idea of competitive memory, right? This is kind of the Palestinians versus Jews, Israelis, like who's more kind of, you know, who's more authentic, whatever. So um, this idea of competitive memory is really important. But there's, um, but there's another scholar who has, who has introduced another idea which he calls multi-directional memory. And what he says is that let's move past this idea of competitive memory or, you know, what someone else calls the Olympics of suffering, <laughs> right? Like, um, and he says, multidirectional memory is different. It's an alternative. It's an intercultural dynamic that has the potential to create new forms of solidarity and new visions of justice. Remembering one people's collective suffering doesn't have to be a zero-sum game in which other forms of victimization lose, right? 
Um, rather, he says, this can be a multi-directional dynamic in which one form of collective memory can open up other forms of collective memory, and really, you know, it has more redemptive possibility. It means that people can really come together in a non-competitive way um, and create new forms of solidarity. So I like this better, you know, um, as a model, and I was thinking a lot about that as I sort of sat in this through this performance um, of Memories of Fire, and then like I was at the cute, you know, and then the kind of audience talk back and really seeing how audiences were consuming this opera. Um, uh, as really an opportunity to create kind of these ties across communities. Um, and I'm going to stop there. So, well yes. <laughs> hopefully there's time for some conversation. Okay. So many topics here, and it's rare that we cover a topic that actually nobody has ever touched on. <laughs> so, this is awesome. I can count the number of books. I don't know. Yeah. Like, for how many of y'all was this like a lot of new stuff? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah too so, much of new stuff. I so know. Really, so it's like really a lot, really a whirlwind awesome. tour. So thank you. And, yeah. and, and this is true for all of Professor Rubenstein's work. It's just amazing. Thank so, you. Yeah, so we are committed to ending on time around 8.30. Okay. So why don't we go around and take a few questions at once if there are, and then you can just reply as you want Fair. Okay. Simple? I know okay. I went on for a long time. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, please don't be this sorry. Is more a comment about the competitive. Yeah. You know, my, my, suffering, my is worse. suffering is worse than yours or whatever. But I think when the Jews came to the United States, um, they were looking towards the Indians and the blacks as um, that. They have it actually worse than we do in, in many of the ways because in some ways they could integrate because they looked white. But it was, um, and it wasn't just done here, it was done in Europe where different peoples who were being oppressed mm. sort of looked at the next group as having it worse or having it better or whatever. Right. So it wasn't necessarily competitive. It was more of what can I learn from it or what, right. come, you know. Yeah, I think what happens in, in a con the contemporary, oh, oh sorry, this idea, this idea that it wasn't necessarily that when Jews, you know, Jews who are kind of the, the oppressed other in Europe come to the US and all of a sudden they, they're part of the power structure, right? Like they have the opportunity to, they can benefit from, from being white. Um, and then looking at sort of, the groups of people who really are at the bottom, right? It sort of uh, um, uh, African Americans and Native Americans, and not it not being a competitive thing necessarily, but you know, kind of this like, how do we now negotiate this new position that we're in? So I guess my response to that is I think yes, and of course, like it's really complicated. How do you negotiate that new position? There are sort of a variety of ways in which Jews respond to this kind of like change in their in their positioning, but I think what happens in the contemporary moment in sort of like what we might call the multicultural moment, right? Like the post-late 60s moment um, is this emergence of competitive, this idea of competitive, um, competitive memory, competitive suffering. I think that's a very contemporary dynamic. And I think it's also not, it's not productive. And it's not conducive to forming alliances and solidarity. So I think it's time, that's why I really like this idea of multi-directional memory versus competitive memory. Um, but yeah, I think that looking back in history, it wasn't always like that. Sorry. Yes, yes. Uh, so going back to um, almost the beginning of the presentation, you mentioned um, a lot of these treaties coming out, you know, the 
Joseph Smith. Read any of those? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the yes, the Mormons definitely believe in the Ten Lost Tribes theories. Yeah. But do you think he actually read any of that material? Yeah, because there was a lot of it, so he may have. I mean, there were um, there were treatises written um, not just by. Well, what's interesting is that Jews, Christians, and Indians themselves could use that idea um, for for particular purposes. So, for instance, there was an uh, so. So yes, I, he probably did, um, because there were Puritans who would write Ten Lost Tribes treatises. But there was actually a native activist, um, an, uh, an activist named William Apes, who was Mordechai Noah's contemporary, who also uses Ten Lost Tribes theories. But he does it in order, first of all, to build this kind of anti-Christian critique, but then also to argue for Native American sovereignty, which is really interesting. So you could kind of like instrumentalize that that theory for all sorts of reasons. But it's, um, as you can imagine, um, it is not a popular theory amongst Native people, right? Because it's, it's a way of just, it's, it's a total, um, yeah, it's like being kind of assimilated into a kind of Christian narrative of, you know. Um, but, um, but yeah, Joseph Smith may very well have read them or knew about them or, you know, it was in the air, you know. I was just going to say, you know, like we are looking at all this from such a historical perspective, but you know, there are like Native Americans still, like so many in Colorado, oh, in yeah. Arizona, states like this. Yeah. That I, I can remember my husband from Colorado, my first time going there, I was the first Jewish person that community had practically met, but they were very friendly with all the local tribal people and they were very much integrated in their community and it's still that way. Mm. So it would be very interesting. But I think those communities could use a lot of help in many ways uh, as a Jewish outreach project actually to mm -hmm. uh, well, change so, some of the ties. If I could say, can I, uh, do you want to respond to that? No, I mean, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'll say at BBM, we try to build bridges with a lot of other communities. And we have tried every avenue we've known to build relationships with local Native communities with like a total wall. Um, and we're not sure. We've given two explanations. One is that the infrastructure is not in place. Um, well, actually, second, that we don't have the right addresses, even though we're, we're networking as much as we can. But the third is that um, there's a hypersensitivity towards those relationships being exploited. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a certain, in yeah. a certain mm -hmm. fashion, yeah, and I so I think that's really tricky. Yeah. To build that trust because yeah. they've been exploited in that kind of that kind totally. of uh, engagement model. So, but if anyone here is interested in that and you have any relationships, we'd love yeah. to. No, I think there's a guy named Gordon Brunitsky who organizes a lot of gatherings. I don't know what he's done lately, but I think that you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of like, you know, suspicion and um, and. Uh, I mean, there are potentially shared, I mean, for me, I see a lot of potential shared um, areas or areas of shared interest. That is to say, even just thinking about a project like the Yiddish Book Center and language revival, right? Like in the ways in which so many um, tribal nations are now engaged in their own projects of kind of cultural reclamation and revival and language revival. And how interesting is that? And also heritage management and preservation. And, you know, are there, are there potentially shared conversations that we can have? And I think, but it's really hard to put it into practice. And it's because of the incredible inequity, um, you know, that still exists. And I think that Jews have to be really, really mindful of the ongoing colonial relationship that the U.S. government has with Native Nations and um, and that you know it's uh, they have to be really sensitive about that. 
So it's not so, I think that you're right. It's not so easy. So yeah. Thank you, Professor. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.